Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. We are pushing pause this morning on our study in the book of Acts. We've really reached a perfect stopping point. Acts is laid out in two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 are focused on the ministry of Peter, largely. And then 13 to the end, focus on the Apostle Paul. So we just finished part one last week, and we'll wait till the new year to start the next part. In the interim, we turn our attention to the prophecies and fulfillment of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the keynotes, of course, in every consideration of the Savior's coming are the love and faithfulness of our God to send His Son to save. Now, we could look at many texts to see these themes, but I want to take you this morning to a text that doesn't get a lot of love. Jeremiah 23. Before we read it, let's pray and ask the Lord's mercy upon us. Heavenly Father, we come thankful that You are a God who has revealed Yourself in Your Holy Word and You've revealed the kind of God that You are to us. A God who is full of steadfast and eternal love. Lord, we pray that we would see that this morning, that Your Spirit would be at work to open our eyes to truth, and that You would stir our hearts as we look at all the good things You have done, and we would find ourselves clinging still more and more to Jesus Christ, the foundation of all of our hopes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading? of God's Word. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6 in the sermon, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Well, thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, as I said, Jeremiah 23 doesn't get a lot of love. And one of those reasons is because Isaiah's prophecies are more well-known, more numerous. They seem to outshine Jeremiah with their frequent New Covenant quotation. But Jeremiah, secondly, is just a really hard and difficult book. Out of the 52 chapters, 90 plus percent is dark and dreadful. It's full of present descriptions of sin and future depictions of judgment. 
Now, it does have a bright spot in the middle, chapters 30 to 33, the famous prophecy of the new covenant with the declaration of God's eternal love to His people, of sin, pardon, of a day of joy and peace. But then it quickly moves right back to the darkness. If we're honest, if you're reading through the Bible in a year this year, Jeremiah is a tough read. However, there are gold nuggets in the grimy mess. And our text is one such gold nugget. Now, before we consider the glimmering gold, we have to cast the dark backdrop that is this section. Jeremiah is prophesying to Judah, starting in the days of Josiah, who's the last godly king, and then he dies. And then Jeremiah would keep speaking until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Josiah was followed by two of his sons, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin, or Chin, and then his brother, Zedekiah, who would be the last king in the southern kingdom. All of these guys were rotten men who walked in idolatry, who ignored the prophets, who committed atrocities in the land, and all of them were deposed and deported. In fact, these are the days when multiple deportations are occurring under the Babylonian Empire. Daniel was taken away in 605 B.C. Ezekiel was dragged off in about 597 B.C. But then here's the saddest part. The Davidic dynasty burning in Jerusalem for some 400 years is suddenly put out in 586 B.C. And it raises massive questions about the promises of God. What about the forever kingdom that the Lord promised to David and a son to reign? What about the hope of righteousness, of peace, of stability? Have God's promises failed? Is the lingering hope of a lion from the tribe of Judah to whom shall be the obedience of the peoples, is that now totally lost? Well, that's the significance of the times as David's line goes into this destruction. And yet in the darkness, with no one deserving deliverance, with no one emerging from the royal line to be faithful, to act wisely, to secure the flock of God, the Lord Himself intervenes with grace and He renews His promise. Brethren, the problem is never with God's promises. It's always with our sin. In Jeremiah's day, the people, because of their evil, face judgment. But God's purpose to bring a great king, a snake crusher, the stone of help, and most beautiful of all, the one who will save us from our most serious problems, sin itself, that promise endures. And here in the darkness, this light is cast. Let's see two things in our text, and the first will take us a little more time. First, notice with me a sovereignly sent king a sovereignly sent king there in verse 5. Now there are two parts to this first point. The fact that the Lord is intervening to send, and then the one He sends, a king, who will be all that we need. So we start with the future action of the Lord, Him intervening to send. Look at verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now notice this is an emphatic declaration. Behold, don't skip that word in your Bible reading. This stresses something. Sometimes it's a surprise, but here it stresses sovereign activity. 
the striking, in this case totally unwarranted, divine action. And it's unwarranted here because of the wretched shepherds who are currently in leadership in Judah. The leaders are all corrupt. Verse 1 highlighted God's judgment of woe upon these rotten shepherds because rather than caring for the sheep, they destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Notice that language that's personal in verses 1 and 2. My pasture, God says, my people, my flock. Judah is a mess of sin, but the Lord still has a people. He's preserved a remnant and He loves them. They're not lovable, but He loves them. And He calls them His own. And for anyone to mistreat His people is to touch the very apple of His eye. It arouses His wrath. And these shepherds are going to get that wrath. But what is to become of the people of God here who are like sheep without a shepherd, who are haggard, abused, scattered, and uncared for here? Well, the Lord says He Himself will act. He will show His love specifically by giving the people a ruler, and of course he means a shepherd, that they need. That's the scene here in verse 5. That Yahweh, Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the covenantally faithful God, will do exactly what He has promised. He will care for His people by placing over them an upright, compassionate, righteous, enemy-squashing shepherd. And let it be seen, brethren, that Jesus, this coming ruler, the Messiah, is a shepherd sent out of the love and faithfulness of our Father in heaven. Nothing in the people warrants an intervention of grace, and yet God gives it, and He gives the leader that we need. It's interesting in the promises of the coming ruler in the Old Testament, how the Lord keeps telling the people He's going to give them a shepherd. Now, David understood that was his calling, that he was to shepherd the people of God, 2 Samuel chapter 5. But then all the shepherds that come pretty much are corrupt. So God says he's going to give his people a shepherd. Listen to how often this comes up. Isaiah chapter 40, after the prepare ye for the way of the Lord, uh, every you know valley should be lifted up, mountains be made low. That's John the baptizer proclaiming the voice crying out. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Namely, God Himself, the Son of God, will come. And what will He do? Isaiah 40 verse 11. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms and carry them in His bosom and gently lead those with young. Do you hear the tenderness of that text? all the abuse of the kings, all the self-centeredness that drove God's people into the ground with bad policies and bad practices. Are you tired of leaders directing you with bad policies and bad practices? I bet you are. And God is saying it's going to stop. This shepherd will stoop and care for the needy. He will show compassion to the lowliest. The shepherd is sent in love and he's sent to save. Then there's Micah 5. You remember this one. The ruler will be born where? In Bethlehem. Ephrathath is the prophecy the scribes read to Herod before the Magi. But Micah 5 isn't just focused on the where the ruler will be born. It's on what the ruler will do. He will stand to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. 
Again, while the litany of kings has provided almost entirely bad leadership, unfaithfulness and injustice, God will intervene and give the care that we need. He'll defend us and protect us. And then there's Ezekiel 34. Much like our text, there's a a woe to false shepherds. And then there's a declaration that the Lord says, Ezekiel 34.11, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Brethren, these are four passages of the Old Testament that all stand in the background of John 10.11 when Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. What we need is a sacrificial, servant-hearted Savior. We need one who will look upon us with compassion. One who will see our desperate state of sin. Who will see that we are like sheep who have wandered off. We've gone our own way. We're not seeking the way back home either because we by nature are full of folly and we are totally lost. But the Lord, not because of anything that we have done, because when you survey the history of man from Adam to Israel and Egypt, to leaders in David's line, all you see is a record of rottenness. But the Lord is pleased to sovereignly determine to save. When Adam fell, the Lord immediately spoke of one to be born of the woman to rescue those of Adam's ruined race. There's an intervention of the grace of God. And that's precisely what Jeremiah is pointing out. Look at verse 5. See the action here. God will raise one up for us. Now friends, that language is really important because it's conveying to us that we aren't raising ourselves up. You all know the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps that seems to be embedded into the American psyche. We can't raise ourselves up. There's a story in the Bible of men raising themselves up. It's Genesis 11 at Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And it was in defiance of the living God. That's what prideful man does. When man aims to raise himself up, it's always disaster. There's Saul building a monument for himself. There's Absalom manipulating people and boasting of his good looks. There's Herod we saw last week who wants to take ascriptions as though he's a god. Man is incapable of raising himself up to be what we need. And when man tries, it's all about his own glory. And of course, that glory is the glory of a pig in its slop. That's what man is. Man is full of selfish ambition and vain conceit, even with the best of men. In fact, if we really consider it, we recognize that every son of Adam carries the stench sin. And what we need, therefore, is a shepherd without that problem. We need a true leader who has the people's needs at heart, and we can't produce a leader like this. Can man rise from his sinful state and overcome all of his trouble through the policies of the 20th and 21st century education, money, connections? Can we raise ourselves up? No, Jeremiah has already told us man's fixed position. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You're going to think weird of me as I tell you what it is. Jeremiah 13.23 
Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? You know the answer, right? No. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What's the point? You can't shake off your sin-sick heart, which Jeremiah has already declared back in chapter 17 is a heart deceitful above all things. And yet here in our helplessness, God acts. Do you see, we're totally passive. The only thing that we're active in doing is destroying ourselves. But then there's a but God moment. It reminds us of Romans chapter 5. God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, we weren't getting better, while we were in a state of sin, Christ died for the ungodly. The Father sends His Son for the weak, the flawed, the foolish, even the enemies of God. In fact, brethren, when we come to think about Jesus, about the virgin birth in particular that's on our minds, it's not just an incredible miracle, though it is that. It's actually a display of how ruined man actually is. Man is so tainted with filth that he cannot possibly produce a real shepherd. We require action from the outside. The virgin birth is a judgment on man's corruption. We need an intervention. We need the Lord to break in. And that's what God is doing. He's going to erupt into the line of David to give us what we need. What mercy. What inexplicable grace that the Lord wouldn't just leave us to die in our sin because that's what we deserve. But He's purposed to save. And it's a salvation rooted in His own good pleasure. It's free grace. Are you struck by the free grace of God? And then it's a purpose that's full of faithfulness. That's also highlighted here. Look at the text again, verse 5, that the Lord will raise up for David a righteous branch. Why for David? Well, God promised David particularly, 2 Samuel 7, that a son from his line would reign forever. He would sit on a throne forever. God's covenant love would never be taken away from him. He would be established forever. Time can't exhaust that promise. Sin can't tarnish that promise. Death can't defeat that promise. God keeps His Word. And then the phrase, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, further highlights this. What God says, He will do. His declarations are not like the orders of mere men. Political plans that go kaput, seemingly the moment people get in office. No, the Lord is faithful. His Word never falls to the ground. Now, God bringing His promises to pass is never dictated by our timetable as much as we would like it to be. God made that promise to David roughly the year 1000 B.C. In Jeremiah 23, it's over 400 years later and we're still waiting. Indeed, God's people are going to wait for about 600 more years before Gabriel speaks to Mary and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. And He shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord will give Him the throne of His father David. It's fulfilling our text. God is declaring to us, brethren, that His promises won't fail. And friends, we come to worship this morning 
with literally thousands of years of biblical and church history to prove this point. Look at the record of the faithfulness of God. Which believer has God failed? Where is the saint of God who's been forsaken? And I know what you're thinking. What hadn't happened yet because it's going to be me. The promises just aren't going to work for me. Somehow, God's not going to intervene for me. No, look at what He's doing. He always keeps His Word. This should strengthen your faith. And then we have hundreds of promises fulfilled in Christ Himself. If you just think about the promises related to Jesus' coming and the work He would do, there are something like 300 specific promises that Jesus fulfills just by showing up and carrying out His work. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. What's that mean for you this morning? It means you can count on this sovereign, faithful, loving God to keep His covenant, to care for you, to show compassion to you. Isn't He worthy of our trust? My friends, are you eyeing this God? Are you looking at Him as full of love, and full of tenderness to care for your needy soul? Or are you entertaining, as the devil would have you do, hard thoughts of God? Still under this first setting, this first heading, let's think about what the righteous branch will do. And by the way, the, the righteous branch is not the same word as Isaiah 11, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, it's the same idea. The Lord's going to take a tree that's effectively cut down, and he's going to bring life out of the dead here. And the branch is said to do three things in our text. Verse 5. First, he shall reign as king. We're not talking about vain wishes and pipe dreams. He's going to sit on a throne. And that throne is not going to be limited to the 200-mile swath in the Middle East. David's throne, First Chronicles 29-23, is the Lord's throne. And as the prophets tell us, particularly Isaiah, the nations will seek the root of Jesse. Or Psalm 72, his dominion will be to the ends of the earth. Do you remember how Isaac Watts puts this? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive courses run. Jesus will rule from pole to pole. The Father is putting all things under his feet. He is seated at the right hand of God. Adam was given a position of power at the beginning, a place of glory and honor at creation. All things were under him, and he forfeited it by his sin. But this coming king will reign over all, and sin won't ruin it. And then secondly, not only will he reign, he will deal wisely. Or we could say he will act wisely. Now, Solomon was the prefigurement of this wisdom that the Lord would give as the first son of David to sit on the throne. And wisdom Solomon had beyond all the sons of men. You remember, his wisdom was world-renowned. The queen of Sheba will come from the ends of the earth to hear him talk. And yet, it's obvious to us that Solomon still lacked wisdom. How could you possibly think 700 wives and 300 concubines was a good idea? whether you're thinking about it from a man's perspective or a woman's perspective. This is horrible. He's wise, yet he's a buffoon. Why in the world would you do that? And he's going to drift away in his devotion to God. 
It will not be so, brother, with the righteous branch for David, who is the Lord Jesus. Consider the display of his wisdom at 12 years old when he's visiting the temple of Jerusalem with his family and the scribes are marveling at his answers. Think about his ministry when the religious leaders are trying to stump him towards the end in Passion Week and they're coming with wave after wave, Pharisees, lawyers, scribes, Herodians, Sadducees, and every time they are made to look like fools. But then there's a different kind of wisdom than just knowing how to sustain the weary with a word and expose hypocrisy. It's the wisdom of knowing what to do to rescue us. Isaiah 52, 13, the beginning of the fourth servant song will say, my servant shall act wisely. Same word is here. He will have the knowledge to bring justification to many. Jesus will knowingly submit to the Father's plan, a plan that requires unfathomable humility so that He would go to the cross as our substitute and pay our debt and wash us clean. The Lord Jesus is the wisdom of God. And as Jesus Himself told the religious leaders, if the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon with His wisdom, I tell you, someone greater than Solomon is here. And how much more should you be ready to come to Him and learn of Him? But then there's a third thing that the king will do. He just won't reign and act wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The Lord Jesus will not pervert justice. He will not oppress, manipulate, accept a bribe, turn away from the needy. He will do what is right. No cause will be ignored. No evil will be allowed to ultimately prevail. If you're poor and afflicted, He will act for you. When liars accuse you, when evil men twist the truth, the Lord will know how things really stand. And He simply won't talk about justice and righteousness. This text is not about politics. But don't you get sick of political leaders talking about change? No doubt that's what the kings in Israel did too. They talked about all the things they were going to change. They had their talking points of the things they were going to implement for their constituents. He won't talk about righteousness and justice. He will execute it. It's already hinting at what is to come in the next verse, that He will bring security to His people. Ultimately, what does it mean? Every wrong will be made right. Brethren, that's the hope with this King. And that hope begins when the greatest threat to justice, when the liar and murderer from the beginning, the devil himself, is struck through the death and resurrection of Jesus. King Jesus comes to lay low our enemies. He comes to put things right. He comes to bring us reconciliation with God. And that begins at the cross where Jesus went to that cursed tree for the sheep. And He took the blow of God's justice and satisfied it. And thereby He silenced the accuser's voice. The devil, with all his injustice and evil, has no ability to drag us down because we're clothed in victory, the very righteousness of our King. And brethren, why is that your position this morning if you're trusting in Christ? Only because the Father in love determined to sovereignly send the Savior that we need. As you think of the Christmas season, Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful little book called Love Came Down 
at Christmas. And what a great title that is. Love Came Down. Do you see it? Secondly, and more briefly, see with me. Salvation and security. Verse 6. In His days, days that is when the righteous branch reigns, in His days Judah will be saved. I'm not going to steal any of Park's thunder for tonight. You should come back and hear Matthew 1.21 and you shall call His name Jesus for He shall save His people from their sins. But nearly 600 years before the angel gives those words to Joseph, you see right here the divine intention. The work of the branch sent by God isn't to make Judites feel better about themselves by just putting somebody on the throne. Just giving them an independent identity as a nation and freeing them from foreign rule. Unfortunately, that seems to be what a lot of the Jewish leadership and sometimes even the disciples are looking for when they think about salvation. Because they seem to believe the real problem is the tyranny of oppressive rulers. Now, tyranny is a problem. And we have seen the Lord rescue His people from tyrannical rulers, whether they be Egyptianites, Canaanites, Assyrians, Babylonians. And yet, even when God saved in all these situations, what did we quickly discover was the real problem? It was sin. And don't we see that most strikingly in the Exodus? The Lord didn't just bring Israel out of Egypt. He saved them from the judgment they deserved before His own wrath. Do you remember the tenth plague? I'm sure you do. All the other plagues just struck Egypt. But the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, in that Israel itself is going to be touched. Death will come to all unless there's an intervention. And yet, the Lord gives a means for His people to escape His own judgment. A lamb was to be sacrificed. Propitiation through blood. That is a sacrifice to satisfy the judgment of God. It was provided. And then every house marked with the blood, a substitute for them, was saved. The Lord passed them over. He saved them from Himself. And then as He brings them into the land, well, before then, as He brings them into the wilderness, by grace, He's going to teach them that you still have this problem. You're still sinners, and I'm going to institute a sacrificial system to show you that sin is your greatest threat. And can't we see that problem throughout all the days of the judges and all the days of the kings where sin is dominating the people of God? They can't overcome sinful oppression. They're in bondage. And they need one to set them free. Well, Isaiah's, sorry, Jeremiah is saying it's coming. Now, Isaiah and Jeremiah both paint word pictures with how bad things are and what the Lord will do. Jeremiah famously says, your heart's sick with this deceitful heart above all else. Isaiah paints an uglier picture. He says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it that is in the people of God but bruises and sores and raw wounds. Your sin is like leprosy. It's not a pretty picture, but imagine it. You have oozing infections, sores covering you from head to toe. You're full of bruises and wounds. From such a 
disgusting people, a holy God would just recoil, right? Isn't that what we expect Jesus to do when the man full of leprosy comes up to Him in Luke chapter 5? And yet, what does Jesus actually do? He touches Him. The Lord is willing to send Emmanuel, to send the servant, His Son, Isaiah 53. And listen to what the servant will do. Isaiah 53. He was literally bruised for our iniquities and by His wounds we are healed. Do you hear what salvation is? We're the ones bruised and full of wounds. But the Savior is bruised and wounded for us and thereby will heal us. He will save us by substituting Himself. Jeremiah is going to anticipate this in talking about the new covenant which demands a sacrifice and somehow our sins are going to be remembered no more. Well, how can they be remembered no more? Because we are saved definitively from sin. You remember how Philip Bliss puts it in his hymn, O Man of Sorrows, you know, he talks about full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our justice is satisfied. Our crimes are cleansed. How? It's because of this King who is called the Righteous Branch. And notice what His name is. Verse 6. This is the name by which He will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah is stressing to us that this coming branch is identified with the Lord Himself. He's mighty God. He's Emmanuel. But further, the work that this righteous branch will do is confer righteousness to God's people so that we can say, the Lord is our righteousness. He Himself, the Christ, is righteous. But He enables us, the people of God, not to say, look at our righteousness. Why don't we say that? Because we don't have any. We say rather, the Lord is our righteousness. In other words, salvation comes to us because the Lord gifts to us righteousness. So we boast not this morning in our deeds, not the work of our hands. We boast in Christ and Christ alone because Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him, Jesus the righteous branch, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you see the picture? Christ gets our sin, our debt, we get His righteousness. He cleanses us and we are pure before the Lord. We boast in Jesus. Brethren, this is our salvation and it is marvelous. It's too good to imagine. It's unbelievable that God would take sinners, clean us and clothe us with the gift of the righteousness of His own Son. It's amazing. That's why the branches come. And this is why, a little plug for what we do here, we don't just celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas and Easter at the same time. Because what we're seeing is Easter can come because of the Incarnation. And we focus on it all. And it should make us a people full of joy. Overwhelming with thanksgiving. Do you remember how the shepherds put it to the angels as they sing the glory of Him before them? One angel says to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great 
joy, which will be for all the people. Brethren, are you rejoicing? We close with this. Why should you rejoice? Well, you have salvation, but what does it all mean? Verse 6, the effect of this salvation is that Israel will dwell securely. If the greatest threat to us is God's judgment for our sin, and then that judgment because of the branch is taken away, what does it mean we have now? We have peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and hear the literal language, we are having, that is right now and continually, we are having peace with God. We've been ushered into a state of total security where there is no condemnation. If God has justified us, removed our sin, and given His righteousness to us, who can condemn us? No charge can be brought against us. We're truly at peace with God in our soul. And this is just the beginning of the taste of the security God gives. Because surely Jeremiah is anticipating a reconciliation that's going to touch everything in this broken world. Because there's coming a day when every effect of the curse will be gone and there will be no more sorrowing and sighing, no more pain, no more death, no more curse. The devil's cronies, demonic power, darkened people doing the deeds of the devil, they'll be gone. And in that day, the fullness of the consummation that Christ brings, we will be able to lie down under our shepherd's care with nothing to make us afraid. Brethren, Jesus brings that kind of peace. Do you long for that? In the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, where peace could be defined as some with a quiet night and some hot chocolate, coffee, a gingerbread, and it's a, it's a wonderful life. Do you want something more? Do you want your sins cleansed? Do you want the assurance of never-ending glory with Christ? Do you want reconciliation in a restored world? That's what the branch brings. And He's a shoot from Jesse's stump, born His people to deliver. Praise the Lord for such a promise from such a God. Let's pray together. O Lord, we stand in awe of Your purposes to save. We are amazed at Your love given to ruined and broken people. And we thank You that Christ has come to ransom us from the fall and its effects. Lord, we pray that we would therefore as sinners come to Jesus, that we would see that He is able to save us, that He is willing and we should doubt no more. Lord, we pray indeed that we would smash our doubts on the stone of Christ. And we ask that You would help us in the midst of difficulty in a troubled world, trouble within ourselves, trouble in our circumstances, trouble by the attacks of the devil, that we could see Christ is our peace and that can never be taken away from us. Therefore, make us to be a joyful people. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.